my dad and I, the, the Grandpa Bill there, that's my dad. We used to go fishing on this, this is really the only reliable trout fishery in Tennessee. Ten Tennessee is more bass country. But uh, if you wanted to catch a trout, you had to get there, dawn, uh, and this river would be completely cloaked in mist. So just as the light's beginning, uh, you could not see someone 10 feet from you. As you're stumbling your way down, you could hear, right, the eerily sounds in the mist. Somebody could be right next to you, and you couldn't see them, but you could hear them fall into the water. Uh, but as the morning came on and the sun began to warm the air, the mist would slowly dissipate. Uh, it happened so gradually that you didn't notice it, that mist's going. But uh, eventually, you found that you could see all the way up the river, all the way down. You could see there's bunches of fishermen here. You didn't know they were there. But it happened so gradually, you never, you never sensed the change. But you knew your situation went from groping and stumbling to complete visibility over time. And things like that in nature are gifts from God. What I meant with the kids, by the book of nature, uh, they give us words, they give us images to describe spiritual things. Words and images to describe what we don't have words for, what we, we could not otherwise describe. If we didn't have the sun and light and darkness, we would not have words for so many spiritual realities, right? So something like the dissolving of the mist by the sun can be our experience as Jesus draws near to us and he confronts false thinking. He comes near, uh, our confusion dissipates. By the same token, uh, his work can be experienced more like uh, the lighting of a candle in a dark room, complete darkness. And then light comes to it and suddenly we can see. But what, what's consistent through the scriptures is whenever scriptures uh, borrow words and images from the book of nature, so borrow, borrow those things, natural things that teach us, whenever they do that is God doesn't leave people the same. Whenever the scriptures use a, a natural image, it communicates this truth, that God doesn't leave people the same. So wherever his rule is accepted, is surrendered to, he sets about rebuilding, remaking, renewing, retelling, redoing, recrafting. There's, this, there's an everlasting kingdom of glory that he is restoring, that he's making. And it is built on his terms, not ours. That's constantly being communicated, right? That he changes things according to his terms, not ours. The giving of God's Holy Spirit. We, we've been celebrating this. We've been enjoying this the last three weeks from Pentecost on. It brings that remaking reality to us. The gift of the Holy Spirit to us begins the reworking in each one of us. 
individually, also together, the Spirit brings the everlasting kingdom of God to us. And it brings the terms of peace that he has set, his terms of peace, to us so that we can enjoy those. Today, uh, we're not leaving that entirely, but we are returning to the Gospel of John. We've been walking through it. But we are continuing in this vein of what the Lord has been teaching us, of his renewing and restoring. We are in John chapter 8. So if you'll turn, please, to John chapter 8. The first 11 verses. We come to a moment in the ministry of Jesus when the question of his ways and his, this kingdom that he's bringing and is claiming to bring comes into focus. So to apply the metaphor started with there, uh, there's a lot of fog on the river. Um, but the light of Christ dissolves that fog. And as he speaks in this moment, it's dissolved. Confusion is dissolved here. First, I should say a few words about the passage as a bit of text, because I'm sure many of your Bibles have a note that uh, some early manuscripts don't contain these 11 verses. You'll, you'll probably see that. However, they are present in over 900 ancient manuscripts. And that's across multiple languages. So uh, that might, you, you see that, you might think, well, how, what, do I, what am I supposed to make of that? Well, uh, I conclude, because this is what the early church obviously concluded, is that the incident undoubtedly happened. Uh, it was part of the Apostle John's regular teaching. It was something he, those who knew him, heard from him. Uh, they, he taught it. And so some copying of his gospel that he wrote had already happened. So the gospel that the manuscripts that don't have this moment, some copying had already begun by the time that the incident began to be included. So the vast majority of manuscripts do have it. Um, in short, the historical church has always considered this genuine apostolic teaching. And it's only, oh, that 20th century desire to undermine the text that we've received that has, has caused us to have some concern about it. I do not. That's why I'm preaching from it. So just so, just so you know, you can talk to me about that later if you want. Now, into this moment itself. The questions of who Jesus is claiming himself to be, what authority he has, by what authority he works, had been coming up in Jerusalem in the chapter prior. That had been a central thrust. Every time that he appeared in Jerusalem, uh, he was identifying himself with God. He was exercising power that only God can exercise. And so this, the question is being raised, who is he? At multiple points already, John has told us that the Jewish leaders sought to kill him, not only because he broke their Sabbath rules, the traditions they had, but because he made himself equal with God. 
They heard it right. He was making himself equal with God. So this incident in the temple complex, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, is a direct attempt by the scribes and Pharisees to put Jesus on the back foot, to put him in a kind of discreditable quandary so that no matter what he says, no matter what he does, he'll be discredited, and they can, they can undermine his claims. It's like much of our political discourse today. Traps. They want to trap him. So they're in the temple. We're told in the first couple of verses. He's seated with a crowd around him. Some scribes and Pharisees then bring a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Verse 4, they say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And John makes clear, they are doing this to try to catch him. The darkness of this moment is extreme. I think sometimes we can just breeze through that this is a very dark moment. So on one hand, you have these religious leaders, they're the upstanding models of the community. They're setting the moral tone for the community. And they hate Jesus. They hate what he's been doing so much. They hate him so much that they will break their own rules and defile themselves by forcibly bringing this tainted woman to the confrontation. What I'm saying is they would have had to touch her drag her there, meaning they've defiled themselves according to their rules. But they hate him so much, they're willing to do that. And they think they've trapped him. If he urges the enforcement of the Mosaic law, that is, if he says, all right, then we stone her, then they get two benefits. First thing, their authority is confirmed. See? All right, the traditions, and they can immediately accuse him to the Roman authorities for breaking the, the imperial law. Jews were not allowed to carry out the sentence of execution. So if he, if he affirms the Mosaic law, you see, in the eyes of the people, yes, see, he affirms our way, and they get to put him out of the way by accusing him to the Romans. He's the one that incited this. But based on the ways that Jesus has been teaching, so based on the ways he's been interpreting the law of Moses, and he's been acting as if he's the writer of the, these things, they probably expected otherwise. They, they expected he is going to interpret this differently than we have. They expected him to go against their authority in some way. That's what they, as they're sitting, as they're watching him, as they're listening to him, that's what he keeps doing, undermining their authority and their position. But they knew he never contradicted the law. He never would. Well, he, would, he always would explain how they have misinterpreted that their traditions had actually corrupted the law, had flipped the sign inside out. That somehow this, the, the signs of the law were meant to point to one thing, and they had got it pointing in another direction. 
But here they had him. Uh, okay, he can't do that. Because here, it's not their traditions. It's the law itself. Though here the law was clear. It's also worth noting, they really don't care about the law, in this instance, at least. Because if they did, they would have brought the man to. In Deuteronomy 22, this law that they're citing says that both of them, when an adultery has occurred, both of them are to be stoned because that's what the law required. So for them, this was all an opportunity to challenge this Jesus, to challenge him as the Christ. That's dark. What they're willing to do here. Then on the other hand, here is a woman caught in the very act of adultery. The shame is extreme. The shame of this moment. We don't know her past. We don't know what led her to it. Um, in a culture like ancient Israel's, Adultery meant that there, were, there was a breakdown in multiple layers. Law, custom, family practice, all of those were protective against adultery, against public sins in any way. And so there's been multiple layers of breakdown here. Darkness had wreaked havoc in her family. Darkness had wreaked havoc in her. But there she was. She did the thing she was accused of. She can't deny it. She can't justify it. And it was, in fact, great and destructive. It was a great evil that she had committed. That's a lot of darkness brought into the temple, brought before Jesus. Clouds of confusion are descended on that moment. Clouds of uncertainty. And these voices of these leaders, they seem to mock out of the darkness. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You righteous one, you merciful one, what are you going to do? Righteousness and mercy can't go together. Can't go together. And then he does this mysterious thing. If you've read the passage before, I know this caught your attention. He stoops down writes with his finger in the dust. Why does he do that? And this is one of the indicators of eyewitness testimony. It's one of the reasons, among many, many, in the Gospel of John, that we take this is, this is eyewitness testimony. It's not explained. It has no known parallel. There's nothing in literature to match it. There's nothing in known cultural practice. There's nothing that... It is apparent, oh, yes, yeah, so John is pointing as he's crafting this narrative. He's pointing to something. We don't know. No one knows why he did this, but that's what he did. And so John tells, he bent down, he wrote in the dust. I will dare to speculate about this. So if you want to bracket something in this sermon, please bracket this. Uh, maybe set it aside. On the surface, of this moment. What's at issue is what's written in the law. That's what, that's what these scribes and Pharisees are bringing. 
what's written in the law. And the question concerns, how will Jesus position himself with respect to what is written in the law? I think in writing on the ground, Jesus answers that question. He's the writer of the law. If what's in the air is this question about the law, how, it, how we should understand what's written, he's saying, he's, he's visualizing, I'm the writer of the law. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will remain. The dust will blow away, but he remains. The law is about the lawgiver. The law is about the lawgiver. The law is about also how lawbreakers stand in relation to the lawgiver. The law isn't about as much as what's written as it is about who has written it. It's a sign. It points truly, because he wrote it. It's firm, it stands, it points truly. But it's ultimately about him. And that message seems to be consistent with what Jesus then says. Verse 7. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin throw the first stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. He makes this pronouncement, then he writes. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elder ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So what happens here in this moment is a clarification a dissolving of the mist, a clarification of their own standing with respect to the lawgiver. No, I don't think they suddenly come to realize Jesus is the lawgiver. That, that fog's still there. But he has dissolved the mist of their false narrative. And they see clearly. And they see in that moment, how long it lasted, we don't know, but they, for that moment they see that they cannot stand before God. Whatever righteousness they came believing that they had, they are not the righteous ones they pretend to be. Each one stands guilty before the eyes of him who sees all and sees all the way in. So when Jesus said those words, God spoke through his mouth. His divine mouth, God spoke. And in this instance, it was effective. That is, it did the thing he sent it to do. It cleared away the mist. It was like the sun, exposing what was hidden, even from these Pharisees. Because to throw the stone, they, they got this, to throw the stone would be to claim perfection. But God had spoken, and in this moment... It was his will that the truth of his words would do the work of light. It would drive back the darkness, and they would know. They would see. It was not always, it's, you know, in the Gospels we see, it's not always God's will that when Jesus speaks to the scribes and Pharisees that the mist dissolves. 
It is in this case. So Jesus resolved this question of the law by revealing the function of the law. It's a relationship to God, who's the giver of life. The function of the law establishes a relationship to God, the giver of life. The only one at that scene with legitimacy to pick up a stone is Jesus. The one to throw the first stone, the one who is without sin. As he laid it out, he's the only one. He, he is the one who inscribed the image of God in dust and breathed life into dust. He's that one. He's that one who set down a way of life for Israel to know him by. He's that same one. He's the one without sin. He's the one with the right of executing judgment. And that's, that's then what he says. It's exactly what he says to the woman. Verse 10, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That word, condemned, here, it means to enact the verdict. To enact the verdict. She is, in fact, guilty. It's, it's clear. The passage is clear. She is guilty. She did the thing. Like the others, she is not righteous. Those Jewish leaders, just as they felt their standing before God, and they felt the guilt of their sin, she too, she felt the truth about it. Their sin had to be uncovered by Jesus' words. Hers was there exposed for all to see. Her shame was, was revealed to everyone. And Jesus says, so nobody has pronounced your judgment. Nobody is enacting the verdict. I also will not. So go now and sin no more. This is sharp clarity. With clarity, Jesus exercises his godliness. The questions that had been hanging in the air, who is he? Who does he claim to be? The Pharisees said, he is making himself equal with God. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He is the lawgiver. So having cleared away everyone's pretenses and shining the truth on everyone's broken state, he speaks as the one who has the right of judgment. He pronounces. And the next thing John records him saying is this. The next thing, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We don't know how this woman responded. We don't know what life she went to. 
Uh, we don't know how those particular Pharisees responded. You know, many Pharisees after the resurrection turned to him. Many Pharisees began to follow Jesus. Was it some of these? We don't know. What we do know is that they all found their lives in that incredibly dark moment. They all found their lives exposed to the God who sees. Like the psalm we opened with. Where can I go from your spirit? The darkness is as light with you. They all found the God who sees, sees them. And through the mouth of the word made flesh, the light of the world, they heard it. And this we must come to again and again. This same recognition and acceptance. We have been exposed. We are known. Ah! We're known. But because Jesus took our sinful nature to the cross with him to die, he has sent his spirit into our hearts. Sinful nature dealt with. Holy Spirit of God given. And so with the apostle Paul cried out, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So why is there no guilty verdict for us? We're guilty. Why is there no guilty verdict? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death, has set us free from our judgment. We have been exposed and are known but the Spirit in us declares us free from the judgment. Jesus took it. So Christian people, we need the application of this law of the Spirit daily. Condemnation is right there, always being pronounced on you. We need the announcement of freedom daily. The Holy Spirit's work is not just for special times. It is for Pentecost. It's not just for special people who really uh, have a special gift. The Holy Spirit is God's Spirit given to comfort us every moment given to assure us, given to guide us every moment, given to bring us Jesus and help us trust him. Each and every day. Each and every day. The Spirit is here to help us. So that when we consider tough questions, we consider tough moments, and we look at the word of God, he helps us understand. He applies the word of God to us. 
If we want his help with life's challenges, he gives it. If we don't want his wisdom, he won't give it. If we have a habit of ignoring the Spirit, we won't hear the Spirit. So if you want his light to dissolve the fog in your thinking, go to the light. If you find your thinking foggy, it's not just going to dissipate on its own. Go to the light. Reading his word with praise, with prayer, with thanksgiving. He communes with you. He's given us the word for fellowship with him. But we often don't. And so we find ourselves again in the fog. I think you already know this, but I'm just going to say, the fog is guaranteed. That's the world we live in. It's a promise. In the world, you will have trouble. In the world, there will be darkness. Not even taxes are as certain as pain, trouble, confusion, darkness. But the light of God the light of God, freedom and eternity has given us fellowship with him. The Holy Spirit has given us fellowship with him whenever we want it. Each and every day. And there is nothing that can overcome him. No darkness too dark. So embrace your freedom. Embrace it. And you won't Embrace it just abstractly. Just by occasionally reminding yourself, oh yes, he gives his spirit for fellowship with him. The lawgiver has set you free for fellowship with him. Embrace that freedom. Lord, you know our tendency to just ignore you. Why do we do it? I don't, I don't know, Lord, why we do this. Um, but I want to pray on our behalf that you would speak into us to awaken appetite to know you, to have desire for fellowship with you, to want you, to want to know you, to be found in you, to be nurtured and to grow in you. We want maturity. Lord, I pray you would drive out and silence the voices that lead us away from you, that would distract us from you who gives us life. In Jesus' name.